Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is musician and cultural artist Simon Joyner. Usually, I would introduce my guest, but today we decided Simon would create his own introduction based around a handful of questions. Simon. Hello, uh, my name is Simon Joyner. What I'm most well known for is probably being an influence on uh, Connor Oberst of Bright Eyes, John Peel, playing my whole album, The Cowardly Traveler Pays His Toll, on his show in 1994, Beck listing one of my records as, his fa- as a favorite in Rolling Stone, and uh, my famously long text messages and emails. <laughs> what I'm least well known for is running an independent record label called Grapefruit Records, which releases non-commercial and experimental music on vinyl and being able to juggle while riding the unicycle. If I didn't do what I did now, I'd love to make films. A particular idiosyncrasy of mine is being obsessively competitive at sports, especially racket sports. And the word I hear most often that others use to describe me is literary. And what I'm hoping for from this conversation today is a chance to get to know Stuart better. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm hoping we can... It was like Mad Libs. <laughs> <laughs> I had to resist not putting too much funny stuff in there. We don't know each other, but I would imagine that another word that people might use for you beyond literary is, is humorous, maybe? I hope so. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to be funny. We had Andy Norman, the executive director of Here in Nebraska, on the show... A couple of months back, and he was in particular giving us an introduction to obviously a subjective but broad-ranging pick of his of great Nebraska music. And you, Simon, were one of the um, artists that he featured. In essence, what he said was that you were revered as a mentor for a whole class of musicians and artists, not only in just in this community, but more broadly, and that you were such a gem for this community. You have had a long and successful and potentially to some degree under the radar career. How are you mentoring or contributing to the musical world and artists in the musical world now? Well, I guess directly, I, I've been... I mean, over the course of my career, I've had um, different record labels that I, you know, was part of to put out other people's music and champion other people's music. Um, And sometimes they, the record labels would put out my music as well. But um, I had one in the 90s called Sing Unix. um, And it was mostly kind of like a cassette and we did some vinyl, but it was mostly uh, Omaha, you know, Omaha bands and trying to get their music heard because my music was catching on a little bit. And um, so there were other labels willing to put my stuff out, but I, there was all this talent in Omaha that I wanted to try and, you know, find some ears for. So uh, I did that in the nineties. And then um, more recently in the last like seven years, I've been running this label called Grapefruit Records to do you know, the same thing again, but for like just an inter- on the international scale, like putting out uh, bands that I think people should hear. So I guess, I don't know if that's mentoring though. That's more just promoting. Do you ever have any um, old or young uh, individuals that just reach out to you and just say, I need some advice. Um, how can I do this? Or even how do I arrange or you know, put together this, uh, the musical arrangement or the lyrics? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean that I get a lot of, uh, you know, emails from people who are just starting to write songs and, you know, want to share uh, lyrics or share their Bandcamp link to see if there's anything that I, if I would listen to something and give them some feedback. And I try to do that as much as I can. And then just, yeah, local musicians who I'm, who I've become friends with or have played music in my band, you know, just I'm open to talking to them about my experiences since I've just been doing it a little bit longer uh, than a lot of people. And that gives me a lot of joy to, you know, just to have some stories to tell and some cautionary tales about 
how things can go wrong. And yeah, I mean, that's nice of him to say those things about me. You know, I, I almost think that I should be, you know, criticizing you because you're so well respected in uh, with your talent and your, you know, the, the, the musical outcome of, of your work, but you aren't living the rock and roll lifestyle Mm-mm. as we maybe <laughs> stereotype it. So why not? I I don't know. I think it's, uh, I think my, I guess my choices over the years have just been such that the kind of music that I make is, it's not for everyone. And um, my voice is a little atypical, I guess. So it's not also not for everyone. And uh, my songs are long. So, and since I started, the attention span of the average listener has shrunk. So, <laughs> so that is, that's going against me, but my songs have stayed just as long. So I don't know. I think I just have wanted to just live my life also. And, um, that putting everything into the career was never something that I was interested in doing. I always wanted to do it as I uh, felt inspired and and to not make a career out of it. And it became a career just as the albums built up over the years. But they're all just art projects and not my job. No, that's so interesting that you say that um, almost like the, the accidental musician and lyricist. And yet in some form of heralding or predestiny, you were named after Paul Simon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So maybe there was a little more uh, intentionality on the part of my parents or something. That, yeah. Well, now it makes me think of you as, um, you know, the child of one of those pushy tennis parents or something. Right. Like yeah. <laughs> well, my, my father was a, like a, I wouldn't say a frustrated musician, but he was a musician uh, and he played instead of reading us stories at night, he would sing us songs, you know, and played the guitar and sang us songs to go to sleep. And so, and he had this giant collection of, you know, 60s records. And so I, I think I found my love of singer-songwriter uh, music and um, rock and roll and vinyl and playing guitar all from his example. Despite this being an accidental career in some ways, Given how you just described that aspect of your childhood, when when did you realize music was going to be this career? Oh, it wasn't until much later. I mean, I I just wanted to know how to play guitar because my dad did, and I really loved that inter, that kind of family interaction with music. That was always really important in our house. And I, but as I got into music as a teenager, I. Uh, you know, of course, tried to learn how to play these songs that I liked. And, and in college, I started, I was in like a creative writing program and things like that. And I was writing stories and thinking about being a writer of some kind. And uh, so the first things I tried to write were songs just because that was, you know, uh, what I was into as a hobby was music. So I love that you used the word literary earlier as something your friends might use as a descriptor for you. And it seems as if the written word is something that has a powerful hold on you and your imagination. Uh, and certainly your it's a talent too. And you talked about creative writing in college. So I, I wonder if you think of yourself more as a storyteller that happens to provide a musical container for those stories or if if I'm just on a flight of fancy and you would think of this completely differently for me the I was always what I wanted to do was write short stories my favorite kind of writing uh, fiction is the short story and um, the um, the economy of it and that you have to get in create uh, characters and uh and a conflict and resolve it within this kind of uh, short period of time. And so that really corresponded well with, with songwriting. And um, so I've always 
I have actually always thought of it as like a way to uh, to do that, but uh, with music as a vehicle. So it's in, yeah, it's important to me that the songs are um, that they, there's character development and and people are behaving logically from how they've been presented and and um, it's you know it's a similar craft I think to writing short stories. Do you think of albums in that sense as a set of chapters that build into a complete work that tells an, an entire story, a larger tome, as it were? Mm-hmm. I think um, I think of an album as being a an opportunity to bring songs together that are that have themes that are interconnected. So when I'm writing new songs, I write more songs than I then will end up on a record. And then I figure out which ones work together to, that could be an album because they have uh, similar themes and try and make the album itself its own kind of work. And then the individual songs, individual works within that. So... You know, there was a time before Rubber Soul, I guess, where albums were just collections of songs. Like, these are just the songs, the the next 10 songs by this artist or whatever. Uh, singles, essentially, like a collection of singles. And then, you know, the Beatles made albums more conceptual and their own kind of work of art. But we're kind of going back to albums being collections of songs again because of the internet and the new single is just, you know, everyone's access to MP3s of individual songs and you can just skip things you don't want to hear. And so now there is a kind of a, there's still people doing it, obviously, but it's, there is a, a movement away from thinking of that album as a, as a whole and more a collection again, but not for me. So that's... <laughs> you are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is musician and cultural artist Simon Joyner. You know, there are some very well-known examples and bands that have used the internet in different ways. Probably some that I don't know that have used it more creatively, but certainly others like REM have used as a tool, pay what you want, it, we, we will issue only digitally, etc., etc. I'm wondering if you have wanted to co-opt or subvert the internet and and use its capacity to present music and lyrics in a different way that you couldn't have done before 
There's definitely, it's definitely made it possible to reach more, more people, uh, the internet and, um, get your, your message out and, and, you know, promoting concerts and tours and, and albums is easier now. Um, but there's a lot more, uh, noise, I think just because there's just so much, there's not as much curation. And so you really have to dig through more to get the things that are, that have quality. It's great that everyone is putting their stuff out there, but it's just, it's a little more work on for the person who, who wants to, uh, to find the good things. And I think that's the case for every genre, you know, there's a lot of, you know, bad stuff and there's a lot, you know, it's just hard to find the, the really great, the great things, but it's worth the effort, you know, if you can sure. dig through it all. So how, how do you consume? It's one thing you presenting your music um, in a particular way, in a particular medium, whether it fits that medium or otherwise, um, how, how do you find that in your downtime you consume music? Um, I find out about things by trusted sources, you know, things like that online, uh, like blogs that where I come to trust the, the content that they're putting out there and they're willing to stand behind and, or following other artists who, who I trust, you know, basically finding it's, it's another way of looking for the curators who are weeding things out for you. And then seeking out that music. And if that music is available on vinyl, then I buy it on vinyl because I prefer albums. But if it's only on CD or CDR or cassette or digital, then I get it that way. And so, yeah, I have, I have music. I'm, I'm listening to music every way that is possible, but I just, I wish that there was, yeah, that everyone was listening to, to vinyl still. And um, that's my preferred medium. But Before we talk about the fragility of an artist, why don't I first talk about some of the kudos you've received? And, and so I want to quote Connor Oberst, who said, Pound for pound, Simon Joyner is my favorite lyricist of all time. So what is it that Connor admires so much about your lyricism, do you think? You'll have to get him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's just something I, you know, I love to just share that quote with everyone, but I don't, I don't know why. Yeah. It is great, uh, isn't it? Yeah. It's nice of him. Um, I think it's the same. I think, you know, we're cut out of a similar cloth in that we, we want to tell stories and present characters who people can relate to and commiserate with um, over just human struggles that are the stuff of living. And that's what I try to do. And I think that that is probably what he, what he likes about, you know, my songwriting is that, that I'm doing that, taking that on. Cause it's not, it's, you know, it's easier to just write songs that are just, straight up love songs or, you know, it's diff more of a challenge to write songs that show how complicated people are and, and, you know, and, uh, how nuanced all those and fragile those relationships are between people. So maybe, yeah, maybe that's it. I want to ask you about the Peel incident, mm. which has a place close, close to, my to your, yeah, right. Um, why didn't you describe the, the Peel incident? It was referred to in that way um, by a rep like a, a reporter when I, I went over to play a festival in Holland and um, these reporters were there um, to interview me um, because I was playing this festival and they asked me what I thought of the Peel incident and I didn't know what they were talking about because, you know, we don't get the John, you know, we weren't getting the John Peel show in the United States. So I wasn't aware of it, but, um, and then, yeah. So then they told me that he had apparently played my record start to finish on his show, which he had, 
you know, either never done before or only done once before for a fall album or something like that. So it just sort of became part of the mythology of my career that this kind of rare thing happened. But I didn't get to hear it, but I've just heard of it. So, Which I think is, is really ironic in some way that you didn't even know that this uh, fairly famous incident had occurred. And I think it was 1994. Mm-hmm. Was this at a pivotal moment for your career or did this spur that or was it happening at the time that you were so-called breaking through or yeah it was kind of when I was breaking through he had championed my music already from my first first release that was more than just a local tape I had this record called Room Temperature and uh, the year before that before this this record that he played all the way. And he had played several songs from it. And he played the, um, I had a split seven inch with the mountain goats that my label put out and he played that and loved, you know, my songs on that and, and talked it up. So I think that was in large part to his just playing my music quite a bit over, over there that, you know, some of these European labels and these festivals and, you know, tried to reach out to me and get me to come over and do some touring. Did you ever speak with him? I did. I spoke with him and we were supposed to meet uh, for a drink both times that I did Peel Sessions. And um, one thing or another came up and he had to cancel. And so I never got to meet him, but I talked to him on the phone and uh, leading up to to the uh, doing the Peel Sessions. So... Was, I wish I had met him because, yeah, he's a big hero of mine too. You know, I mean, uh, growing up listening to records, the Peel Sessions uh, albums by all these bands were always, uh, you know, this cool opportunity where they did unusual things that they didn't do on their own records and live in the studio. So, so yeah, it was a real honor to be appreciated by him and then to play his show. You talked earlier about curating and finding curators that take a journey with them and explore what they're exploring as opposed to some others that perhaps don't you don't trust or they their taste doesn't align with your own typically so where do people go for that now how how do people do that and and are we perhaps losing something in music because it's impossible to find anything that is challenging or different I think um, I think there are still a lot of tastemakers that that are worth you know following or worth like investigating. It's just a little harder to find you know even them. It's harder harder to find them. But people who are really in love with the with music, you know, are willing to do the work to you know. You have to try some things that you end up not liking until you find. Uh, the right sources for the music that you're that you can relate to, um, and you know, just various tastemakers, you know, curating music. If you're into a lot of different genres of music, so there's different people who are the authority and um, on the under the radar level to the popular level, and so I think it just takes a lot of you know, exploration, you know, in the nineties, we just would, there would be certain magazines that you would get and you would kind of see someone's review of a band you liked would say, Oh, reminds me of, you know, or if you like this and then you write those things down and you go and you find those records, you know, it was really direct. You couldn't listen. You had to just buy it (laughs) and then find out (laughs) if they were right, that it's something that you would like, you know. I love those, uh, the image of those 60s and 70s sound booths in record stores. And you would take the album into the soundproof booth, you'd put it on, and you would listen to it in the booth. That was how you would find whether or not you liked it. And that was assuming that this vinyl store had a booth. A booth, could, yeah. yeah. Now you have, um, you know, Bandcamp is, a, is, you know, an equivalent for that. You can, if you hear about a band, you can see if they have a Bandcamp uh page and go and listen to 
some of their songs before you buy their record. I was lucky enough that Kate Dussault of Hi-Fi House has been on the show and she, I asked her for some suggestions on the musical interludes for the show and she suggested several, one of whom was uh, a jazz trumpeter called Theo Croker, who I'd never heard of, but talking about curators, she's someone that has an eclectic, diverse, broad knowledge of music. And uh, I found myself very lucky that she was someone that introduced me to someone who I would never in a million years have stumbled across. Right. Yeah, that's how it works. It's mm. it's great when that happens. How do you do that for yourself, but from a, a literary point of view? I, I guess I want to pursue that literary side of things a little further. Who influenced you in terms of what you write? Who do you enjoy reading? Mm-hmm. Well, my wife works at a at Jackson Street Booksellers, so I I can always find um, <laughs> the books once I hear about an, an author that I might like, you know. So, um, and um, yeah, just other well read. You know, just people who, who are, it's a similar thing, I guess, you know, just people who are into, um, the same kind of stuff as you, you seek out their, you know, some of the things that they've suggested that you check out. I'm trying to, th- uh, I always freeze up whenever I'm asked to name things that I've been reading lately or listening to. That's one of my main problems, but... Um, Who's on your nightstand? Yeah, that's the. Yeah, I was just thinking Seven. about that. I was picturing that tower of books on my nightstand. <laughs> There's a Bobby Ann Mason book of short stories. You talked um, about the economy of of language and narrative earlier, and it makes me think of poetry. And I, I guess I think of lyrics as poems in many ways. And it was potentially arguable, but you have someone like Bob Dylan, whose work has been incorporated into poetry. His lyrics have been incorporated into poetry anthologies. And of course, most notably recently, he was um, awarded a Nobel. And I'm, I'm, Curious if if you see some synergies between lyrics and other you know these other literary forms. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you know it's obviously different from in some ways from from poetry because it it depends on a music element, but um, poetry often has um, a you know a meter that has a musicality to it, and and so it's it's a similar. Um, it depends on similar things, I guess. And one is just sort of silent and the other is explicit. But I know there are, you know, a lot of writers uh, of poetry objected to this idea that that Bob Dylan was, you know, a poet or something, which seems silly to me. But, I mean, it's definitely, uh, it, it seems definitely the case that he that he is and that songs can be po- they're poetic you know even if they're um even if they also rely on this this extra element that the uh writers don't get to use and so it's sort of like i can see them saying hey it's not fair because they can rely on these other em- emotional triggers that music provides to to fill in some of the blanks that they're not doing with the words. Um, but poets have only the words. And so it's, it's really not a fair fight or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> don't take just a pen to a poetry fight. Right. That yeah. That's probably not yeah. quite the right quote. <laughs> Bring a whole band. Yeah. <laughs> Bring a blank sheet of paper to anything and that would terrify anybody. Right. Yeah. That's true. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Walking the 
And this is Lives. My guest today is musician and cultural artist Simon Joyner. In your uh, bio, you mentioned that if you weren't doing what what you do, if you hadn't done what you'd done, that you'd be interested in being a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. D- tell us more about that that passion and that interest. I mean, I love I love film, and that was another another art form that I just always appreciated it and thought would be fascinating to, uh, to take stories and, and try and that's another example of, a a short form, you know, uh, medium where you have to get in and get out within a kind of prescribed period of time, an acceptable window of time to, to tell a story. Um, which is why often the novels are hard to translate into to film because it they have so much more time to to develop all of those things. I guess for the same reasons I like short stories, I have been fascinated by film and how it it works in that same you know kind of hot minute you know to to get in and get out and and still like have a an impact that is just as strong as um, what can happen if you read sometimes a great notion or some really long novel. Have you actually been making film or dabbling? No, okay. no. It's just if if I hadn't started <laughs> writing songs and and getting some kind of um, you know success doing that and and continued to try and hone my craft in that field i i would i think i would have really enjoyed um making film so maybe there's still time well there's plenty of people who do yeah all you know all kinds of things i i don't have to just do this (laughs) no no um you're not you're not um condemned to a lifetime of being just a successful musician No, I guess seriously, uh, lives are always made up of different acts. And um, I think it's open, especially now it feels in, I don't know why, but in the 21st century that remaking ourselves is always possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I, after this, I'm going to start writing a screenplay <laughs> after this interview. <laughs> we can start now. Uh, yeah. I'm not it sure. It starts in a, we're in a radio station. <laughs> Is there anything that you feel is a subject that you already have in your mind's eye that is worth exploring? Um, not anything in particular. It would probably, if I were, you know, making films, it would be similar subject matter. You know, I'm guessing um, just the struggles of people in their relationships and, uh, and, um, you know, everyday life kind of stuff. It's my my guess. You talked in that way about about your music and especially about your lyrics and how they are somewhat more uh, long form as songs, but they're really sort of short form as stories. 
Do you think there's a song that you've written that would be ideal rendered in cinematic format? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. I'm sure some of them are long enough that people feel like they've been to a movie. <laughs> um, One with an intermission. Yeah, there. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I'm not, there's nothing that, uh, that jumps to, you know, jumps to mind that should, that I could see. But, uh, but perhaps, I mean, if, if there's enough detail, I guess, you know, I could suggest I'd try to have, there's some of the songs that have are more traditional story where they have a, a more of an arc, you know, and then others are more character studies um, where there's no resolution necessarily. It's more of present a problem and, and imagine what happens after this story is over. And that's kind of what I like about short stories is that the, um, what ends up happening is something that you wrestle with after the story's over, because it suggests you you kind of get an idea of what kind of tools this particular person character has to deal with this particular problem. And then you have to think about whether or not those tools are going to be sufficient enough to deal with it. And then you can just imagine all the ramifications, the possible ramifications of what happens after the, after the last page. Whereas in, you know, a novel, they usually try and tell you a little bit more about how everything turns out. <laughs> I guess film can more experimental film, uh, can do that. And, and, but people, tend to revolt when when things are left too up up in the air you know they want a little more closure in case we're not getting the sense strongly enough that you are an aesthetically eclectic cultural person let's move on to antiques oh. <laughs> so, you, so you have an antique store well i don't have an antique store i used to work at an antique store and i ended up creating a business selling antiques for antique dealers. But I'm not an antique dealer specifically, but I sell a lot of antiques for them on um, online, on eBay. So that's what I've been doing since 2001. Um, so I have a business. It's more of a consignment business. But uh, yeah, I know a lot about antiques because of that, that work. Um, but I don't go, I'm not in line at five in the morning to get into, uh, estate sales and to buy things myself. I let them do that. So you're not scanning the obituaries looking for Mrs. Right. Miggins who unfortunately passed right. last week. Yeah. Right. I'm not doing the ambulance chasing, <laughs> but I'm taking commission from ambulance chasers, I guess. Why did you decide to enter this world of antique buying and selling? Well, I was working part-time at an antique store called Antiques and Fine Art that was in the old market in the, you know, late 90s. And the it was around the time that eBay started. And, you know, the brick-and-mortar antique stores were starting to suffer from people finding things online instead of like having to get everything by wandering into a store and, and, and digging through. So they, no one really knew how to put things on the internet. And I knew a little bit about enough about computers that I could figure it out. So I became the eBay guy when, um, they started to sell the antiques, but it was just a part-time job at that point because I had, I was working in a record store as well and, and, uh, just needed another part-time job, but it suited me. I really like, uh, the history of things and, uh, and this, you know, things as, as symbols and of that we use to kind of define ourselves and things like that. So it works well as a for me too as a 
tools for songwriting. How have you used that ethos and those elements or artifacts in to, to inspire your work or in your work? Well, the time, I guess time is a, all, seems to be a, a major theme in a lot of the songs, songwriting that I do and, and just how it erodes people's resolve or how it changes people. And, um, and so I guess antiques are sort of a manifestation of a physical manifestation of, of time and how it tarnishes and flakes and becomes things become brittle and tired <laughs> and exhausted and uh yeah so i mean it's just a there are useful metaphors there that i've you know been able to because of knowing about uh, various you know collectible things and antiques that i've been able to you know draw from from those those things to kind of put artifacts in songs or have characters who are handling objects that kind of then um just by virtue of that that object being in the song it it gives information that i don't have to give with words you know with with other words so i don't know what items might be on our listeners' keyrings, but if we're talking about symbols that we use and we're talking about artifacts and elements of expression, you on your keyring on the table right now have a little sculpture of the Eiffel Tower. Mm, right. So I'm going to assume that there is a narrative that goes around why the Eiffel Tower on your keyring. Yeah. Um, well, there is. Um, both my daughters um, went to France for their junior year of high school and spent a year, uh, a whole year there, and uh, interacted with that culture and learned fluent French and, you know, got connected with families and friends and experienced another culture. And, um, and we had a French foreign exchange student who lived with us for a year. So yeah, it's kind of a it's special for that reason. One of one of them, one of the daughters, gave uh, gave me the key ring. So, yeah, I love that story. Yeah, it's. I'm glad you noticed it. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Hello 
Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is musician and cultural artist Simon Joyner. As we think about moving towards a, a conclusion, um, I'm wondering first if you look back on a very multifaceted career and life and are surprised at this point how things have turned out. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, um, as far as, yeah, this music career was something that kind of, I wouldn't say it blindsided me because it was never, it was always just this drip, 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 cumulative uh, thing where I just kept plugging away at what I do and, and ended up here still, still doing it, you know, and still finding, still finding pleasure and telling these stories and writing, making music and playing with other musicians and, and learning from them, um, putting out records. It's, uh, I didn't expect it to be something that I would still be doing this, you know, for this long. I just thought it would be something I did for a couple of years while I was in college or something, you know, as a, as a hobby, but, um, it turned out to be something that I enjoyed more than some of the other things I was pursuing in, in school. So it, it, it stuck and the other things didn't, or they stuck in other ways, you know, but not as, as a career. So you've had a career from, let's just say 25 years. What do you think you'll be looking back on 25 years from now? Hmm. Well, um, well, hopefully there'll be more of a body of work to kind of to look at and um and um you know hopefully more I'll be able to do more music you know help other you know other artists um put out music and um you know produce more records for other people and yeah I I'm at the point where I'm really wanting to um, try and, you know, help other artists like get heard and, and, and have their music out there. So I'm, I'm looking at ways to do that, you know, in addition to continuing to do what I do, but um, trying to find ways of, of uh, helping other artists too. I think one of those ways you have demonstrated, I think, in your life, a certain degree of rootedness, and you've eschewed, I think, some of the stereotypes that go with uh, an industry known for sort of hyperbole and, um, and uh, you know, razzmatazz. And so there's this rootedness uh, about you while at the same time doing things that are quite unusual. And clearly you're vested in community in this this sense of what it is to be in relationship with with people and relationships are important to you but also that sense of giving back I think comes across quite um, quite clearly and passionately and I know that an entity or an endeavor called soundscape is one aspect of that that is forthcoming mm-hmm. and I I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit more about that sure yeah um, we haven't announced it yet, but I'm in the process of, um, starting this organization called Soundscape and it's going to be, a, a nonprofit venue for, um, like j- just a diverse array of, of music that is, you know, non-commercial music with, you know, community programming and a, a radio station and a recording studio for members and, um, like a artist residency program, things like that. So I'm really excited about it, and it's yeah, it's it's on the uh, the horizon. It's coming soon. So where where is it going to be? Not necessarily specifically, but but where is it's it? It's going to be in Omaha, okay. but we we are scouting, you know, locations right now. So we 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 don't have the place yet, but uh, it's it's something that we're we're actively you know, finding the right space for it and, and developing the, the programming with the expectation of going in there soon, going in somewhere soon. I feel like this is a scoop. Yeah. It's the first <laughs> I've talked about it, except to people at dinner parties and things like that. Yeah. So 
It's been behind the scenes. skin again You raised the stakes, took your time and made your move Your tongue said come To listen to this show again and to hear past shows download the podcast at iTunes search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show Well mama had to split Papa can't forget to me and the baby. I've been in conversation today with musician and cultural artist Simon Joyner. It's been a real pleasure uh, chatting with you. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm reading a book. Um, uh, what is the title? Oh, this is, you're going to have to edit all this out because I'm just, <laughs> I'm just stumbling here. <laughs> oh, man. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.